Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Wendy Fideli is the practising dietitian at Women's Health Melbourne. As a dietitian, Wendy loves working with women and couples during the perinatal period to optimise their diet and provide their babies with the best possible start to life. With a master's degree in dietetics and clinical hospital experience, Wendy has the skills and expertise to translate the evidence into individualised nutrition advice. Welcome back, Wendy, to Knocked Up. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Today's topic is super sperm. And we have brought Wendy Fideli, who is an amazing clinical nutritionist, back to talk because so much about sperm function and all of the parameters can be influenced by diet. That is true, yeah. I was actually just kind of going over some stuff last night in preparation for this and I said to my husband, you know what, I can't believe that I don't see more men in my clinic because it really does have such a big impact. So, yeah, very glad to be here chatting about this one today. Yeah, and it's actually important to note for all our listeners that at least a third of couples who struggle to get pregnant, there's more than one factor involved. So if we can help the sperm be as good as it can be, no matter what the other factors, that can get couples over the line both naturally and also improve their chances with all assisted reproductive treatments. And the sperm's the one thing that can be impacted, isn't it? Because the eggs are set. Well, not necessarily. So I guess a woman is born with all the eggs that she'll ever make, but we do know that over time there will be some damage that happens to those eggs as we age. That's sort of a natural part of aging. Um, We do know that there is also kind of a critical window for eggs as well where we can have some some of an impact too and that's sort of um, in the period where they're maturing so kind of the 90-ish days before ovulation so we can have a a bit of an impact on egg quality as well but we can certainly have a big impact on sperm quality too. Yeah so in terms of egg quality I think really the impacts are really on the physical environment and the, the woman's metabolism and environment because no egg stands alone an egg develops in the context of a woman's body. And if that environment throws hostile elements at the developing egg or nutrient deficient elements at the developing pregnancy, that just sets us up for a fall. So if we can optimize everything we can about our diet and lifestyle, that's certainly one of the things that's within our power to do. Whereas many other problems in fertility are completely outside the realm of our control. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the great things about 
nutrition is that it is something that is directly in our control that we can do. And you're right, so many things we do are outside of our control and we need to leave to the experts like you. But it is the one thing that women can sort of take on board themselves and take control of. But as we're talking about today, nutrition is also a really powerful thing that men can take on board as well and that can have a really big impact and a quick impact too, which is nice. (laughs) Now, you mentioned, Wendy, that you don't see as many men as you do women for fertility interventions and proactive choice making. Can you give us a little bit of an idea why you think that might be? I think part of it is that men don't necessarily see it as their problem. Like they don't realise that their diet and their lifestyle has such a big impact because the woman is the one who is releasing the egg, is carrying the baby. Fertility is seen as a woman's problem a lot of the time. So I think that's a big part of it. And often when I do get men coming, it's because their partner has sort of dragged them along and they might have more of an idea. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think also women just seem to, and maybe this is a big generalisation, but kind of engage more in health behaviours and kind of those self-care things as well at the moment. I think that's definitely changing, but I think traditionally in terms of just seeing a dietitian in general, by choice, I think probably more women than men would be coming anyway for all sorts of health reasons. I think women who are conceiving naturally think of nutrition during pregnancy, not necessarily the period before, but they're very conscious about feeding their baby well and looking after themselves during the pregnancy. Whereas when I think women are going through reproductive treatment, they are very aware of the time beforehand because of the conversations they're having with the doctor. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's brought more to their attention. And do people always come and see you in as a couple Rayleigh, or do they sometimes just come on their own? So I strongly encourage patients to come as a couple and I do that through many ways. In all of my online education materials, I always infer that I need to see in a heterosexual relationship a couple if they're struggling to conceive because we don't know from the outset where the problem is and it is just as likely to be a male problem as a female problem. I occasionally will have women come by themselves without their partner, but most couples are committed together to the common goal of having a baby. And I think it should be easier than ever actually now with such access to telehealth technology that, you know, the excuse that, oh, it's hard for both to have time off work for an appointment those kind of things we can get around with technology. All we need is half an hour, 45 minute window to really do a full assessment as a couple. And I don't have any incentive for patients to come without their partner. All our fertility consultations are the same cost, whether the partner attends or doesn't in a heterosexual relationship. So we try and really make it as incentivized as possible for everyone to be there because at the end of the day we need everyone to come to the table and work together as a team and that includes a man, a woman and their specialist in a heterosexual context in terms of getting over whatever problems are present to help them succeed in their common goals. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic and really important and it's also making me reflect on my own, my website and my marketing of myself. I guess it's very sort of women's health focused and so probably I need to be pushing more that 
fertility is it's not just a women's issue and marketing it more and selling it more in that way to get more more men couples through the door if you're right there are heterosexual couples so wendy women tend to be fairly aware probably because of marketing and the fact that every time they go into a pharmacy certain products are on view that it's recommended to take a nutritional supplement planning for a pregnancy we're focusing on the women there but do you think the men should be taking a supplement as well it's interesting to be honest in the preconception period there's actually a little bit more research in terms of supplements and things like antioxidants, there's more research on the benefits for sperm than there is for, you know, egg quality and things like that. So I think particularly if the man knew already that he had issues with his sperm, that's when I would be looking at a supplement definitely. I think it's not going to hurt otherwise. But, yeah, I think if, if you know that there are problems with sperm quality, we have some research now showing that certain supplements can have an impact on different sperm parameters. And so, like, a few of those nutrients, things like selenium and coenzyme Q10 and carnitines, um, and now you can get sort of multivitamin supplements that have a variety of nutrients. And so some of them could be worth taking. I guess the problem is is that the amounts in those aren't always the amounts that were in the study. So we don't know actually how useful they're going to be. But definitely there could be some supplements that would be worthwhile if you know that you've got issues with your sperm. And then there are a couple of others that just wouldn't hurt to take anyway if your diet is lacking. So yeah, I think I think they can be a good idea for some men, definitely. So Wendy, if a man doesn't necessarily know or suspect he has concerns in terms of his sperm production or function, but he just wants to be as healthy as possible and create the healthiest sperm to help him and his partner make a baby. What would your ideal behaviour set be in the three months leading up to planning for a pregnancy? That is a good question. And I guess it's actually quite simple. So it's, you know, we don't need any, there's no special sort of fertility diet. It's really similar to what we'd be recommending to everyone. It's a general healthy diet, really. Um, and I guess that's what the research has shown is that men who follow what we consider healthy diets and so things like a Mediterranean style diet that's high in vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts and seeds, oily fish, poultry, that's sort of the dietary pattern that we want limiting things like, you know, processed foods, really high sugar foods, things like um, saturated and trans fats that would get in fried foods, your commercial baked goods. They're the sort of things that we want to be limiting. And then I guess just others engaging in other healthful behaviours, so not having a really high alcohol intake. If you can get your weight in check, there's a bit of research showing that that is really beneficial for sperm quality as well and we don't want to be underweight and we don't want to be overweight following a, a general healthful diet would be what I'd be aiming for. There are a few, you know, different specific foods that I would look at including in my diet because there's some research. So, for example, oily fish and seafood being high in omega-3 fatty acids. If you can include oily fish and seafood, the low mercury options, so your smaller fish and things like salmon, sardines, mackerel, herring, including those, say, twice a week would be a really good thing. Nuts and seeds, Having those, you know, a small handful every day would be a really good thing to include. 
And I guess the biggest thing is that we want to be getting lots and lots of antioxidants in your diet. And that's what's in a lot of those supplements that we may be recommending if there were issues with sperm quality. So if you can get them from your diet, from things like vegetables, lots of different kinds and colours, so leafy greens are great, orange coloured vegetables, tomatoes would be a good one too, but all vegetables are good. Fruit and things like brightly coloured berries, but all different fruits. A big variety of plant-based foods, lots of herbs and spices. They, they would be all things that I'd ideally be liking men to be including in their preconception diet to give their sort of sperm the best chance. We were talking about weight and yeah. it's always a very loaded and difficult topic to address. But we know that when men are overweight and especially when they are clinically obese, they have a couple of different issues to do with sperm. The first is that our fat tissue that we store energy in is an endocrine tissue. It's an active tissue. And men who do have a problem with obesity make too much of the female range hormones, especially estrone, and that can circulate in their bloodstream and damp down their sperm-producing hormonal drive. And we also know that there's problems with men who are overweight in terms of the testes overheating and the sperm being developed in a suboptimal environment. The testes like to be ideally a couple of degrees cooler than the body. And when men are very overweight, they don't cool as effectively. And men who are overweight also are more likely to have varicose veins of the scrotum, which are called varicocele. It's just a generalization that if we are in general overweight, we are more likely to have venous insufficiency. It's true for both men and women, but that also does increase the risk that their testis is just not functioning at the right temperature. I guess I would think there's a big role, both in men and women, for a clinical dietitian to assist in weight optimization before conception. And I would often refer patients to see you for that reason, to have that guidance, because if patients could click their fingers and reduce weight, they all would. And the reason that people don't do that is it's really, really hard. Can you talk us through a little bit of how you might approach a patient who needs that kind of assistance and guidance and how a clinical dietitian can support a patient who's making every effort to optimise weight either before pregnancy or preconception, be they a male or a female? It is a really individualised approach and it will depend what is going on in the individual and I guess what are the underlying factors for them. So for some people, it could be more of, you know, an emotional relationship to food that is part of the issue. And so then it can be working through some of those issues because a lot of the time people sort of know on a general level what they should be eating. And it, it's just that it can be very hard when we have that sort of emotional connection to food. And so sometimes it's working around more of those issues as well. And at times we might need to work with other professionals as well, like psychologists to help with that too. I guess another consideration is because, you know, people can just go and there are lots of fad diets out there that you could go and just quickly drop a lot of weight in. But the other consideration is that 
we know that for sperm to be healthy, there are a lot of different nutrients that are involved and particularly in that 74 days or whatever it is that that we're um, producing sperm, that lots of different nutrients are involved in that process for things like cell division and DNA synthesis. So making sure that we have lots of those on board as well. So I guess part of it is just making sure that although obviously we need to create an energy deficit or a calorie deficit to enable weight loss, making sure that we're doing it in a way that actually meets all of your vitamin and mineral requirements at the same time. So that's a big part of it too. And then I guess working on things like motivation and accountability accountability can be helpful too. Yeah, so it's really about building a team and having a team. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's not and that's the thing, you know, and for some for some people it might just be knowing what to do and what to eat and sort of in what amounts and some people don't have that level of knowledge and for other people they will require more support. Wendy, when someone comes to see you for the first time, what what will happen in that appointment? So the initial appointment, there's a lot of sort of information gathering and looking at your medical history, your blood results things that what you've tried in the past, looking in detail at your weight history as well. And for example, things like, you know, when your weight started to change, when your weight became an issue, if it is sort of around weight reasons, looking at your relationship with food and then any medications that you might be on, different supplements that you're taking. And then it really is just a really thorough look at your diet as well. I generally get people to sort of fill in a bit of a checklist before they come and see me, but then we do a really thorough what we call a diet history where I get you to take me through in detail what you'd eat in a general day and then sort of using that information to come up with an individualised plan for you and then we go from there. And then after, so that that's the initial assessment and then follow-up sessions involve sort of tweaking our initial recommendations and building on it. And we usually set some goals to begin with in the first session, but, you know, you can't, you can't do everything at once. You're not going to change everything at once. And it's working on behaviour change after that and supporting that. And in terms of genetics, there are some people who might struggle more than others because of their genes. And in those cases, diet may not be the be-all and end-all. What percentage of couples do you think we can really get them over the line just by making diet and lifestyle changes to conceive naturally? Oh, that's a tricky one. I actually don't wouldn't know what percentage it would be. I know that like a diet can certainly have a big impact on sperm health, so a significant percentage. But for some people there are going to be issues where we're not going to be able to impact and if then there are also issues on the woman's side as well then it might not necessarily have an impact. But we do know and you can see from studies that changing diet can have a very big impact in anywhere from two weeks to six months. And obviously things like if if it's something like weight needing to change then that's going to take a bit longer. But in terms of if it's just dietary changes and things like increasing antioxidant status and reducing oxidative stress, and that can be far quicker as well. And there are some really great benefits of targeting nutrition preconception in that what we're really trying to do is set someone up for a healthy pregnancy. And especially from the female side of things, setting up for a healthy pregnancy is so important and so beneficial. Yeah, and I think not just like, and you say from the female side of things, but also 
a healthy pregnancy, yes, but then also a healthy baby and a healthy baby that has sort of better health outcomes throughout their life. And we know that it's certainly what a a woman eats in the lead up to and during pregnancy and if breastfeeding after pregnancy has a big impact on the lifelong health of her baby. But we also know that what a man eats in the lead up to when he when they conceive the child also has a big impact on the lifelong health of their baby and anything from you know their metabolism and their risk of chronic diseases and their risk of obesity throughout life so it's not just about you know being able to conceive it's being able to conceive a child that then does well throughout life as well that's such an important point because if you intervene on a family at this time point you're also likely to influence behaviours moving forward at that time during pregnancy and beyond. And those healthy eating habits are going to have impacts on everybody's health moving forward for the rest of their life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, that's, that is an excellent point as well. And I guess initially what I was referring to was more from like a, what we call an epigenetic influence so that the man can sort of impact his own genes to a certain extent and then that is passed on to the DNA that he provides to that baby but you're exactly right that it's also about the health behaviors that you're then modeling and then that impacts sort of the health of the whole family really and there's lots of research on that actually and we know that young children what they see their fathers eating that that impacts their eating habits throughout life as well. So Wendy given that we've uncovered really that men are in general, as a big generalisation, not as involved and not as committed to coming to see a clinical dietitian, really looking at their diet and lifestyle and making changes around the time of having a family. What can we do to engage men more? That is a really good question. And I guess part of it is about educating them on the impact that there is an ability to change their health and the health of their sperm. And then the impact that that can have on their ability to, for them as a couple to be able to have a baby and the health of their baby, so letting them know that. And I guess it's about reaching men because I imagine, and I may be wrong, but things like this podcast, probably a lot of the view, uh, the listeners are women. And I know that where I'm, you know, reaching women in my website and everything, it, that's it's more women that are seeing that. And so I guess it's about trying to reach men where they are and where they view information and so that that's actually a really good question I know also that by their partners hearing this information that that is a really good way of reaching them as well because then you know their partners can go and talk to them about it so I guess also letting women know that yeah men are a big part of this picture as well So in summary, Wendy, how can we make super sperm? How can we help men be the best they can be? Ah. (laughs) So I think like I was saying before, aiming for just a really good quality whole foods diet, come and have a chat to me if you know that you have specific issues or if you just want to optimise your sperm health and having a look at different nutrients and antioxidants that can really be important. But otherwise, you know, focusing on a whole foods diet with a Mediterranean sort of style diet, as many different vegetables as you can get in, fruits, whole grains, nuts and seeds, oily fish, and trying to minimise things like heavy drinking, 
and, you know, having high amounts of processed meats and, you know, processed foods in general, looking after your health in general is the best thing that you can do. Thank you. We have another episode in our back catalogue on endocrine disrupting chemicals and we haven't really gone into that in today's episode which has been more focused on nutrition but in terms of men seeking advice about reducing any kind of chemical exposures in the environment especially the home environment and the food environment we would encourage to, to look into that. From the nutrition perspective can you talk just a little bit about how we might come into contact with endocrine disruptors through foods and what measures can we take to avoid exposures through foods? Yeah, so I guess through foods there are a few different ways. So one of them I guess is pesticides, certain pesticides that might be on um, fruit and vegetables and then can also, you know, come into contact with, you know, animals from their feet and things like that. If possible when you can if you can choose organic that could be one option and otherwise making sure that you're washing your fruits and vegetables as well as you can so that's one way another area is sort of the packaging of food and food storage so a lot of the the chemicals that um, those endocrine disrupting chemicals that come into our food supply come in through that packaging and things like plastic so plastic food containers um, and tins as well. So the lining in tins are a source of BPA is one of the chemicals, but even if they're BPA free, often that's just replaced with another chemical. So reducing the amount of tin foods that you're using, choosing BPA free when you can, but also in general, I'd try and reduce the amount of tin foods that you're having. Trying to limit your use of plastic food storage containers and particularly the ones that are coming into contact with heat. So try and avoid, you know, microwaving your food in plastic containers, you know, trying to do it in glass containers and, you know, put a ceramic plate or something on top or just doing it in your bowls with a plate on top can be a good option as well. Things like water bottles, trying to avoid drinking out of plastic water bottles, using a glass or a stainless steel one is a good idea trying to avoid putting your plastics in the dishwasher if you're using them and I usually some people it can seem overwhelming and like they've got to change and get rid of everything that they have but usually what I say is when it comes to plastics try and focus on the ones that are really sort of old and degraded first and then anything that would come into contact with heat they're the ones that I'd be replacing first so they're just a few different ideas Raya, I wanted to ask about what super sperm looks like or what, I suppose, sperm before good nutrition looks like compared to what it can look like when it's healthy. Yeah, well, absolutely. So look, when we look at sperm, we use the WHO World Health Organization criteria to judge a sperm in a sperm sample. And I always say one look at sperm, you know, I never know if it's a personal best or a bad day. That's my catchphrase because sperm does fluctuate wildly in the same man uh, with different changes in the environment, whether he's had a fever, whether he's been unwell, whether he's been really super stressed or tired. And there was actually a study done in prisons in the UK looking at men having different semen analyses at set intervals and we, we see that that fluctuation demonstrated and graphed when we looked at lots of men who hadn't necessarily had trouble getting pregnant or getting their partners pregnant. 
So bearing in mind that, you know, we look at the WHO cutoffs and they are looking at the fifth centile of the normal population. So they looked at several thousand men from across different places around the world whose partners had conceived within a year, which is acceptable, without any intervention from technology or doctors. And they looked at the fifth centile, which means 90, 95% of sperm looked better than this kind of proportion of the men in that sample. And they drew a line and they said that that is what we call the bottom end of the normal range. So we say the bottom end of the normal range for sperm morphology is 4% normal forms, which means at least 4% of the sperm, that's 4 in 100 sperm, looks beautiful. So it's got the right shaped head, it's got a nicely formed nucleus and acrosome, which is the acid cap at the tip of the sperm, and a nicely shaped tail. And you really need to have that good sperm anatomy to be an excellent swimmer, to be a really super sperm swimmer. Because if you're the wrong shape or you've got two heads or two tails, you're not going to make it to the egg. From the sperm's perspective, the egg is a long way away. So we like at least 4% to be normal, but that's a pretty low bar. And I can tell you as someone who looks at sperm tests day in, day out and has for years, I would say the average for a semen analysis would be more like 10 to 15% normal forms. And the best I've ever seen in my entire working professional life is 55% normal forms. So when we say 4% is normal, it's said with a bit of a grain of salt and certainly if only less than 4% is normal, well, that's an issue. And what can cause that issue can be genes. So it can be an issue that no matter what we do and no matter how amazing our efforts, it won't change. But it can also be diet and lifestyle and particularly if the sperm has good parameters in terms of concentration and it has lousy morphology, that is typical of a smoker. And usually when smoking stops, that's, you know, good, good testis, good factory can make sperm, sperm being poisoned by a toxin. And when the man stops smoking, if you look again, the morphology often does improve radically. And that is because the sperm making factory is now the cloud of smoke has lifted and the, the factory is going on unimpaired. So that's a particularly, you know, I would say low-hanging fruit for couples who are struggling to conceive and the man smokes. And certainly passive smoking is an issue and smoking is also very, very bad for female fertility. So one thing, uniting as a couple to quit smoking is one of the best things you can do to improve your chance of getting pregnant. A problem that people often see, because often people who smoke you know, their friends smoke too and it's a social thing and they'll see people around them who get pregnant who smoke and they'll say, oh, well, it's not the smoking because so-and-so got pregnant and they smoke. And the thing is with smoking is that everybody is differently susceptible to the effects and while smoking is universally bad for everyone and has health impacts for everyone, whether they be dire or minor, they're there. Uh, for some people, it's they're really susceptible to it and they just have really radical effects on sperm. In terms of the other parameters of normal, again, the fifth centile of the normal count is 15 million per mil, but the average would be more like somewhere between 100 and 150 million per mil. 
And the bottom range of what we're happy with in terms of the fifth centile for motility, which is how a sperm swims, is 32% of the sperm. But in an average sample, there's upwards often of 55% swimming normally. So it's like the bottom, it's like the just okay is the bottom of the normal range. And if you've just ticked over the just okay range into the bottom of the normal range, it means that there's still a lot of work that can be done to make things better. Wendy, we had an episode with Professor David Gardner recently talking about embryology and oxidative stress. And he speaks so beautifully, but explains that oxygen, which is the element that we need to survive is also an element that causes damage to our cells and our bodies by generating oxidative stress where free radicals, which are little electrons buzzing around, can damage our cells. Can you tell us a little bit about antioxidants, what they are and how they can help in terms of making healthy sperm? An antioxidant is a compound that can lessen the effect of oxidative stress and stop the free radicals from causing damage and causing this oxidative stress that can damage our sperm. And that's really important because during um, sperm production, the sperm are really vulnerable to that oxidative stress. And these antioxidants, we can get them from our diet. And so things like fruits and vegetables, um, especially, you know, your brightly coloured fruits and um, lots of different vegetables and nuts and seeds and things like herbs and spices, all these are really good sources of antioxidants. And so when we have a higher amount of antioxidants on board, that can help to reduce some of that oxidative stress that can damage the sperm. So that's why it's really important that we've got a really good quality diet that's providing all of those. And we can take antioxidants as supplements, but our body probably absorbs natural antioxidants better, doesn't it? Yes, generally. However, um, some studies that have looked at the benefits of these antioxidants, what they've found is that the supplements, are, for some of them, have needed to be in much higher doses than from what we actually get from our diet. For example, selenium is one of the one of the antioxidant supplements that is often recommended and the amount of selenium that they've shown to be a benefit in studies is about four times what the recommended daily intake is. Potentially, if you have issues with your sperm, it could be worthwhile taking a supplement because you might not necessarily be getting enough from your diet. That being said, at the same time, still a great idea to really be optimising those dietary sources as well. So for selenium, Brazil nuts are an amazing source and you only need you know, a few of them a few times a week to get enough things like fish and seafood, which we'd be recommending anyway. That's really interesting. So even though you can't get the recommended daily intake through diet without changing your diet up, you can still get it through foods if you want to. Like some people don't like taking tablets or swallowing tablets. Do you think for most things, for some things, no. I know you'd have to eat a truckload of spinach to get the kind of folate doses we ask women to take preconception, but... For most things, would you say that the antioxidants can be achieved with the right guidance through diet? I think from a general level, yes. 
So that's why I wouldn't say that necessarily all men should be taking an antioxidant supplement. If you have a really good quality diet, then you should be getting enough. I guess it's for, so what these studies have looked at is people that maybe have higher levels of oxidative stress on board. And so that's when an antioxidant supplement can be a good idea. But otherwise, yes, I think for most things, just having a good quality diet with a range of foods can be enough. Food as medicine. Food as medicine, exactly right, exactly right. And I think as, as much as possible, and you're right, there are lots of different nutrients where we certainly absorb them and utilise them better when they're coming from food because food doesn't just contain one nutrient, it contains a whole range of different nutrients and they work sort of synergistically together to, you know, some other nutrients in the food might help you absorb other nutrients in that food better. So that's why generally speaking, if you can get most things from your diet, it's a really good idea. Do either of you have any last bits of advice for our listeners? One thing that we haven't talked about, which has very little to do with nutrition, is the frequency of ejaculation. And we think it's important that a man should ejaculate frequently, whether that's through sex or just through masturbation. But clearing out the sperm and keeping those sperm moving is one thing that can help the actual quality of the sperm if it's fresh and not too stale. The other thing that I would say is that some aspects of poor sperm performance and function can be the sperm acting like the canary in the mine shaft. There might be a systemic medical condition or concern that the man is facing that the sperm are not working properly because the body's not prioritizing the sperm or, or any illness really can affect sperm production. So having a full medical assessment is 100% necessary for any man who has a sperm problem and getting to the bottom of any medical issues that can be either optimised or reversed. You say ejaculate frequently. What What is frequently? Every couple of days. So at least three times a week would be what I would recommend. So Wendy, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Where can our listeners find out more information about you? They can follow me on Instagram, Wendy Fidelli Dietitian, or um, I have a website, wendyfidelidietitian.com.au, bit of a mouthful, um, and also on the Women's Health Melbourne website as well. There's information there and a link to book in as well if you wanted to make an appointment too. 